welcome to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. With a recent school shooting at Robb Elementary School in Texas, there has been a wave of protests across the country surrounding the issue of gun control. This school shooting, in particular, has increased the number of people joining organizations like Moms Demand Action and overall interest in actions to decrease gun violence has been increasing. March for Our Lives, which was founded after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High in Parkland, Florida, also returned to Washington this past weekend with rallies in 400 different locations across all 50 states. So what many listening to the show may have noticed is that these protests that are happening and this increased interest has a very young and youthful feel to it. Younger Americans seem to be drawn to protesting specifically about this purpose. And so to discuss this generation, which has shown up with their lives changed due to gun violence at schools, I'm joined today by two scholars to chat about their research in this area. Alexandra Middlewood is an assistant professor of political science at Wichita State University. Her areas of specialization include gun politics, public opinion, political behavior, civic engagement, and gender. Her research focuses on the political participation and attitudes of American gun owners. Abigail Vector is an assistant professor of political science at Berry College in Rome, Georgia. Her scholarship broadly focuses on religion and politics, gun politics, and public opinion. Currently, she's investigating the relationship between guns and religion in the United States. So Alex and Abby, thanks for being on the show today. Thank Thank you so much for having us. So there's so much to talk about surrounding the issue of guns and public opinion, and I want to jump right in and chat with both of you about a recent article that I saw that you did together that was on the monkey cage, and in it, you refer to this generation that's being very active in this as the massacre generation. So could one of you, either one of you, explain to me a little bit about what that is and where that definition comes from? Sure. Um, We read an article in the Washington Post um, from a couple years back in which a young woman talked about how she was a member of the massacre generation. And she talked about her life and her experiences as being really framed by violence. And Alex and I read that. And as um, members of the massacre generation ourselves, really wanted to kind of look at how this generation was thinking about gun violence, especially as they've almost been primed to expect this type of violence. As we've seen um, active shooting train, active shooter training kind of go up in um, high schools and elementary schools and middle schools all over the country, we're teaching young people today that mass violence is not necessarily an if, but a when. And so that constant state of expecting that kind of violence has to have an impact. And Alex and I kind of not only wanted to see what that impact is today, but how it's changed over time. So we talk about the massacre generation as really including anyone who was under the age of 18 when Columbine happened in 1999 and beyond. Um, 
So while that wasn't the first school shooting in the United States, it's one that definitely shifted the conversation around gun violence and mass violence generally, especially as it pertains to young people. Yeah, I noticed in your article, you mentioned the definition and the years that you're looking at for that. And you mentioned 1982 as really being the starting point for that, which is my, the year that I was born. And I have never considered myself as part of the massacre generation. So both of you are also part of this generation, correct? Alex, what years did you both graduate? Yes. Um, So I graduated high school in 2010. I was born in 1992. Yeah, and I graduated in 2013 and was born in 1994. Yeah, so, and honestly, y'all's experiences at schools are going to be very different than mine. So in 1982, right, that Columbine, as you mentioned, was something that happened when I was in high school. I remember it clearly, but we didn't have the active shooter drills that everyone else had. Now, for both of you, do you remember going through those drills or was that something that happened after you graduated? So I did not have active shooter drills in high school, um, though active shooter um, situations were certainly becoming more common during that time. I think part of the reason that I did not was because I went to a rural high school in Michigan, um, which we now have more research on that shows that actually rural schools are much more likely to have um, mass shooter situations than other schools. Um, But I definitely remember bomb threats being an issue when I was in high school. And how about you, Abby? Yeah, I also didn't have this active shooter training kind of happen when I was in high school. Um, But I do remember in college having those types of conversations. Um, There was a situation when I was in college where we were all texted and and told to take shelter because there was someone with a gun and on campus and the situation had dissipated and all was fine. But um, in that moment, we all knew what to do because those conversations had been such a part of our kind of socialization in college. Now, are there other characteristics other than just age or perhaps starting in 1982 and moving forward? Are there other characteristics that link these people together that you're looking at in this massacre generation? Yeah, so it's not necessarily just school shootings. Um, So a lot of our discussion around this has been about school shootings because they've been so prevalent. But if we think about other situations um, where there have been mass shootings at nightclubs, at music festivals, et cetera, those also tend to disproportionately affect young people. Um, So not necessarily high school or even college students, but younger people tend to be those that go to those events. Um, So when we say young people, we're really talking about people under the age of 35. Um, And that's under the age of 35 even today, uh, which are, you know, we're certainly not, I'm 30 and I'm certainly not in high school or college, I'm a college professor. Um, And so it's not just school shootings, but it's these other situations um, where we've seen these Um, episodes of mass violence as well. And we talk about this generation as being distinct also because of how connected they are to one another, how connected we are to other members of our generation in ways that older generations were not able to be. So even though we're um, obviously you weren't in around Columbine when it happened, but you probably have a connection to other people in your generation who 
experience that in a different way. And, and we obviously weren't necessarily in high school when Parkland took place, but because of social media and because of the kind of um, social connectedness we have with other members of our generation, it kind of reinforces these concerns about violence and these attitudes about what can be done. Yeah. So how does this, how does this generation, the massacre generation or whatever we want to call it, how does this generation feel about guns? Is there a consistent thread of, of their attitudes or is it still kind of all over the place? So it's more all over the place. So we don't want to say that everybody in this age cohort is homogenous because they have very different views on guns and they have very different views on what the government can do to prevent mass shootings. Though they tend to, as we find in our research, say that the government can do something what that something is, we don't know um, because it's so diverse amongst different people. Um, we know, for example, that people who bought firearms in 2020 tended to be younger people as well. Um, and so it's not that young people are totally gun averse. They're just much more likely to turn to the government to try to, um, sorry, to try to assuade their anxiety about mass shootings. Um, and this is kind of generally true in the anxiety and politics literature. When people feel a lot of fear or anxiety about something, they turn to government for answers. And so mass shootings certainly fit into that category of situations that incite fear and anxiety in people. Um, and in particular, young people in this situation, because they're much more likely to experience those episodes of mass shootings and gun violence. And to add on to what Alex was sharing as well, with our research, survey participants were given two were given two options. So one, the government can take action to prevent these types of mass shootings from happening, or no, these types of mass shootings will happen regardless of government action. And so we're, like Alex said, not trying to generalize all members of the massacre generation to think that the same government action will be preventable, but they do think that government can do something to prevent these events and they don't take the previous or the other option of, no, these are going to happen no matter what. And you find that this generation is distinct from the other generations, correct? Like who was involved in the survey that you looked at? So it was kind of a unique um, project for us. We don't normally work this way, um, but we basically found almost the exact question asked of survey participants in eight different data sets from 1999 to 2018. So we analyze all that data um, and it's over the course of 20 years. So for a lot of those um, surveys, they were sponsored by CNN or USA Today, um, but some of them were sponsored by the University of Kansas and, and Brigham Young um, University. And so we are using a lot of different data which we think helps us make our point even stronger. It's consistent across the data sets. Yeah, and it's more than just looking at only young people. You're looking at the entire population of individuals. Mm -hmm. Now, I noticed in the piece that I read uh, from the monkey cage that you mentioned that there is a considerable shift in 2012. Why is that? We find the shift in 2012, and other scholars have found this before us as well, really to be because 2012 itself had so many of these mass shooting events. Um, so there were multiple at high schools and college events. Um, there was, of course, the 
Aurora, Colorado movie theater shooting in Sandy Hook Elementary School. Um, and so 2012 is really just rocked by all of these major mass shooting events. And we also start to see a lot of media coverage about it. So that's not to say that previous mass shootings didn't get any media coverage, but we see sustained coverage of it in 2012. Um, and there are so many of these events consecutively throughout the year. And so that's really when we start to see public attitude shift on, can the government do something to prevent mass shootings? Um, is in 2012. And then we see that sustained through 2018, at least, because that's the last data set that we look at. Now, is there something in specifically, something specifically that these students think the government can do? I, know, I mean, I know we're talking about them saying that like the government should do something, but is there anything they're landing on as being this is what the government should do? We don't have a ton of access to those specific attitudes. Um, We know that there are certain gun policies, gun control policies that receive widespread support. Closing the um, background check loophole is one that a lot of people support. Um, There's some things on automatic, semi-automatic rifles, um, limiting who can have access to those. There's all sorts of policies that experience widespread support. We have not yet investigated which of those Um, maybe suggested government interventions are most supported by young people, um, but those are some that have widespread support. And it's really unique that these young people that are in our survey data even say that government can do anything. So when we look at the older generational cohort um, above people who are above the age of 35, they are not more likely as a generation to say that government can do something. Um, And so just the fact that young people are consistent as a group and say that government can do something to prevent this is really unique in its own right, even if they don't necessarily agree on what that action should be. Well, let me interject for a moment. Hi, everybody. If you're just now joining us and you've been like, let's say you just tuned in. Hi, this is Red, White, Confused, and I'm your host, Heather Evans. You've been hearing a chat uh, with me and Alexandra Middlewood and Abigail Vector. Alexandra is an assistant professor of political science at Wichita State University, and her areas of specialization include gun politics, public opinion, political behavior, civic engagement, and gender. And Abigail Vector is an assistant professor of political science at Berry College in Rome, Georgia, and her scholarship broadly focuses on religion and politics, gun politics, and public opinion. Well, we've been chatting about young people, but I want to talk about y'all's other research as well, because both of you are interested in gun politics in different ways. And Alex, I thought I would talk, I would start with you um, on some of your other work. And I know that you are looking specifically in some of your work at political engagement of gun owners, those who own uh, weapons and, and, and how they get involved in government action. So I am in Southwest Virginia and here people own guns. You know, this is a rural area. Many people own many guns and a lot of people just grow up around firearms. Children are taught about gun safety and so forth. And honestly, I would probably even say young people here know more about guns and gun safety than in other areas, right? More urban areas. Now, your work focuses specifically on their likelihood of engaging with their representatives and things like that. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your work in that area? Yeah, so gun owners are much more likely to be engaged in politics. 
Um, so they're more likely to be registered to vote, to actually vote on election day, both for presidential and congressional elections. Um, they're more likely to contact their public officials, particularly about gun politics. Um, they're more likely to discuss politics with people that they know and people that they don't know, um, and particularly if it's about gun politics. And so really what I find is that owning a gun really has become this type of political identity for people. And there's lots of research um, that looks at that relationship directly. Um, but what I find is that it does impact their political engagement. Um, so we know that gun owners are not only just more likely to show up on election day, but if there's something going on that they like or don't like, their members of Congress are gonna hear about it. Um, and that's part of the reason why we know that we haven't really had a great track record of gun safety reform laws in the United States is because we have this hyper engaged and mobilized group of people who are going to speak up when there's something going on in Congress that they don't like or that they do like, depending on the situation. Yeah. Now, do you find that um, there are differences within gun owners as a group? Like, can you split that out? And are there certain gun owners that are just significantly more active than others? Yeah. So what I find in my research um, is gun owners who are from rural areas are even more um, likely to engage in specifically gun-related politics. Um, so not just are they gonna contact their public officials, but they're gonna do so on gun issues more than a gun owner who does not live in a rural area. Um, part of that is because gun ownership is so intertwined with the rural way of life, um, as you were just talking about. And so it really takes on this extra type of identity for these rural gun owners. Um, and then I also study women gun owners. So this is really my big area of research is on women gun owners. And we know, for example, that since 1980, women in the United States have been more likely to vote than men, but they are less likely to participate in politics in other ways. Um, but amongst gun owners, women are just as likely to participate as male gun owners are. Um, so gun ownership really closes that participation gap on a lot of various types of political behavior. Um, the most interesting one that I think that my research shows is on political discussions. So women who are gun owners are just as likely to talk to someone they don't know about politics as male gun owners are, and much more likely to do so than women who are not gun owners. So that's really interesting. I also, I, I research gender and um, in, in terms of like issues, right? That there's certain issues that are more female owned and there are certain issues that are more male owned. And honestly, gun control, well, guns I would place with male issues, but women tend to be more dovish than hawkish. So your research is really fascinating to me in that area that the gender and, and that gun owners who are women are a little different than those who aren't gun owners who are also women. What is it you think it is about the gun ownership that is driving the extra participation? Yeah, so we have several iterations of gun culture in the United States. Um, there's, of course, you know, the original gun culture, which is about tyranny and democracy. Um, the second iteration, which is really about hunting and sport shooting. 
But the most recent iteration of gun culture, um, which we call gun culture 2.0, really focuses on self-defense. And this is a type of gun ownership that resonates across identity and demographic lines, and particularly resonates with women. Um, so hunting and sport shooting is not really something that during that time period really resonated with a lot of women, unless they were you know, hunting to provide for their family or using guns for security if they were on the frontier or whatever it may be. Um, but owning a gun, particularly it tends to be handguns for self-defense has really become a lot more common among women since the 1980s, um, but even more so since the great gun buying spree of 2020, we see a lot of the people who bought guns in 2020 were women who had never owned a firearm before. And it's really because um, of this messaging that gun groups, and I'm not just talking about the NRA here, but you know, gun manufacturers and gun groups use that women can protect themselves if they use a gun. Um, and so one of the kind of tongue in cheek sayings within the gun community is that God made man and women, but Samuel Colt made them equal. Um, so that's kind of an interesting way to think about this, um, that it allows for women to take self-defense into their own hands and to try to protect themselves if they're feeling threatened. And so that really kind of changes how they interact with gun politics when it's they themselves who are owning a gun for this very specific reason. That's fascinating. Okay, Abby, I now have to turn to you. I know that you've been doing work in religion and gun ownership, Protestantism and gun ownership. Can you, okay, so, you know, again, I'm, and Alex, this gets back to something you said earlier about being in a rural area. I live in Appalachia, right? Mm -hmm. Appalachia, it's pretty rural. It's pretty religious. It's the Bible belt. So tell me about, your research, Abby. Yeah, so it is um, been really fascinating, especially in the last several years to be looking at how religion and gun culture kind of interact in the United States. So something that we find um, is that evangelicalism specifically can predict not only gun ownership, if an individual is likely to own a gun, but also um, a gun owner identity, which is another kind of core component of uh, my work and, and Alex does a little bit of this too, thinking about how important owning a gun is to an individual's sense of self. So we know that there is a difference between mainline Protestants and evangelical Protestants and how likely they are to kind of adopt this gun owner identity. And there is a real difference there. And part of my argument throughout my scholarship is it's this commitment to this value of individualism. It's something that gun owners and evangelical Protestants really share. And there's a, there's a real powerful overlap between that commitment. And looking at other religious groups, mainline Protestants, Catholics, um, Jewish, Jewish communities in America, they have a commitment to collectivism that isn't the same, it's not valued the same way in evangelical communities. So that kind of helps explain this shared affinity for one another. Um, a lot of a lot of gun culture is is quite um, favorable to evangelicals and vice versa. And those two identities can reinforce one another in really interesting and powerful ways. Alex mentioned the great gun buying spree of 2020. And we were able to kind of look at who was buying those guns in 2020. And for a lot of individuals, it was a diversifying moment, right? Gun owners in the United States became much more diverse that summer than they had been previously. 
but evangelical Protestantism was still a strong predictor for if an individual was going to purchase a gun during that great gun buying spree, um, which is just endlessly fascinating to me. (laughs) It is to me as well. And then I think about, so I've, I've been thinking about all of your research for both of you and how this might impact the upcoming election. So evangelicals have been voting, right? Women vote, um, young people are voting. How, you know, at the last time I looked, and this has been the case now for a while, survey research is showing that like 90%, close to 90% of Americans would say we need stronger background checks. Is that going to matter on elect? Like, is this going to matter for democratic politics or that are Democrats going to like gain something with this discussion? Or do you not think that they will? What are your thoughts on that? I think it depends. Um, And I know that that feels a little bit like a cop-out answer, um, but it depends on how much people prioritize these issues when deciding who to vote for. Um, And that goes for, you know, young people who think government can do something and all of these other groups that we've been talking about. Um, So we, what we see in our political parties in the United States is they have these really broad issue bases and they're talking about all of these different issues. And is someone going to prioritize, you know, gun safety reform versus economic issues? And we don't have a way to predict that um, at this point in time. Now, do I think that as young people become a larger part of the electorate, as they care more about this issue, as, you know, our research and other research shows that they do, that we will see more and more legislation geared towards that part of the electorate, towards these young people? Yes, I absolutely do. Um, Do I think that it's gonna be this year in 2022? That just depends on what issues people prioritize when they cast their ballots on election day. Um, And I also want to take a second to talk about how we just discussed, you know, over 90% of Americans support universal background checks. When people are asked that question on a survey, they are much more likely to say yes. But when you ask them specific types of gun transactions, they're much more likely to think about it and have to decide if they actually do support that. So someone could say that, yeah, gun shows they should have to pass a background check. But if I wanna share or I wanna sell a gun to my buddy, do I want him to have to go through a background check or her to have to go through a background check to do that? There are these differences within this question that a broad question like, do you support universal background checks really doesn't get at. Um, And so that's why it depends. It really just depends on, you know, what issues people are going to prioritize in this election. Yeah, I was thinking about your research specifically, Alex, about the gun owners are the are the ones who are very, very, very active in politics. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it. when something like this comes up, we hear from, from gun owners. Now, women might be a little different than men and, mm-hmm. you know, evangelicals a little different than non-evangelicals and so forth. But um, I think that this is an issue that motivates people and it can motivate people in different ways. But even there have been past elections where it seems like this is going to be that issue. And then it just doesn't really motivate people to either engage in that election or that's not the reason that they're voting in the way that they're voting. 
Right. Well, and there's some really interesting research out there too, using Google, which I, I just love that we can do this. Um, and just looking at how, as Alex kind of mentioned earlier, how sustained attention is to gun issues. And as, as Alex said, it's just hard to predict, right? A lot of people would have assumed that after the tragedy that was Sandy Hook, we would have seen this substantial change in policy and we did it. And so for a lot of people, they were like, if we're not going to see it now, it's never going to happen. And that's why I do think our research brings a little bit of hope because young people are saying, no, actually, if it can still happen, right? the government can do something. We're not giving up and stepping away and saying this is going to happen no matter what. We're saying, no, some sort of action can be taken to prevent these tragedies from taking place. That's a great way to end this. I, I want to say one more thing before we close out the show today. So right now, uh, for those who are listening, I know that the Senate and the House are discussing gun legislation. One of the uh, most significant pieces of a proposal that is supposed to come from the Senate is subjecting gun buyers who are 21 years of age and younger to the scrutiny of their criminal and their mental health records as juveniles. And so that is on the table and that is significant. And that would be something that I think that the, this generation that we've been talking about would welcome. Um, so we'll see what happens in the coming weeks with that. Well, thank you both for being on the show today. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you missed any piece of this program, you can catch up again anytime on Spotify or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Have a great week. 